Good evening. How's everyone? I, uh, I'm excited to be here with you this evening to talk about some of the work I've been doing. And um, by way of starting, I like to do a little exercise um, that supports our sense of Sangha. Uh, because racism is so much of a belonging issue um, that um, examining our relationship with belonging is a piece of what I think is pretty foundational for us to consider. So uh, what I want you to do is just turn where you are near someone and just get face to face with one other person near you. We're going to do a couple of rounds of this. And it's, this is just going to be very simple and quick, but hopefully touching. Just get face to face with one other person near you. And just look around and make sure everybody is uh, phased. Okay, so we're not talking uh, just yet. <laughs> just look around. Take a moment here. Um, and if you're in a trio, that's okay. Just take a moment and look at the person you're with. Have a connection here, just through your presence. And I'm playing with um, Thich Nhat Hanh's poem of Please Call Me By My True Name, just a piece of that poem. Just continue to look as I read these pieces. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Oh, just taking a breath here, continuing to look. Offering kindness and silence, and then turning nearby to one other person. Just doing that very gently, pair up with one other person, someone near you. Pausing here. Once again, really taking a moment to just look. Staying with your body and your breath. I am the two-year-old girl pulled away from her mother and father, separated from her family and put into a detention camp in another state. And I am the current administration, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And continuing to look, repeat after me these phrases. If I didn't belong to you, I wouldn't, be here. I wouldn't be here. If you didn't belong to me, you wouldn't have come. My heart and your heart are very old friends. Let's offer a bow, gesture of kindness, and then find your seat. Can't. So I have uh, quite a bit I'd like to say this evening, um, but I'd first like to just give honor to the, to the native people of this land who kept it together for us for so many generations so that we might be seen, sitting here. Um, and honor to your ancestors and lineage, because if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't be sitting here. It took the good ones, the bad ones, and the ugly ones <laughs> for us to be sitting here. Um, so 
So honor to them, honor to our lineage teachers that have kept the teachings alive and embodied and uh, wholesome for us, setting an example for what's possible, what can be embodied in this practice for us. Giving thanks to the Buddha who specialized in suffering and race, race and racism is a source of deep suffering for us in our social realm and in our own hearts. And giving honor to the people who gave birth to this center. Um, it takes energy to pull something that's beautiful and lovely together. And it takes deep practice to keep it going. And my sense is all of you are a part of that on some level, maybe new to that or continuing or flirting with um, your participation in a community of vibrancy and intelligence and wisdom to uh, keep it going. So I'm grateful for this invitation to talk about um, this work, which is, um, you know, as crazy as our times are, it's not the craziest times I've seen in my lifetime. So it's, it's kind of a different kind of crazy, <laughs> you know, that we're living in. We can just look around and just see the magnitude of uh, suffering that's in the world. You know, the, we've got uh, immigration issues. We've got the uh, kind of blanket criminalization of dark bodies and families. We've got gun violence and misogyny and sexism and fear of our children leaving home. Um, Puerto Rico is still an issue. Flint, Michigan is still an issue. Um, you know, we've got um, political hatred and a threat to our democracy at an all-time high. And so I've, I've kind of carved out race to look at from this kind of um, kaleidoscope of social ills because I still think it's the one that is the most difficult for us to um, be intimate with or to penetrate in a way that we can actually see the social fabric, uh, that thread that runs through all of these ills. It's, it's still kind of so embedded that we, 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 we struggle with it in a bit way. There's this repetitive motion injury around this topic and a chronic fatigue that is uh, touching all of us and um, in ways where it feels um, uh, it's a itch and a scratch where it's just kind of confusing, confusing, or you know, an all time just rage about it. And then we sit in a room like this in this practice. And so I'm just, I've just been really um, taken with um, the role that this practice has played in my life personally in working with this issue, both internally in my own heart, but also in my relationship to racism in the world, in the social context. Understanding how we have been conditioned to think and react is at the heart of both racial suffering and racial healing. Understanding how we got here. So a number of experiences came together for me in writing this book. and. Uh, some of them issues that have been in my life a long time and then other issues that are just just keep getting all in my face. But one, one thing that just I can't seem to shake is this image of my great-grandmother when I was around seven years old before she died. I used to watch her pacing the kitchen floor in constant worry, constant worry. She couldn't protect the black bodies in her family from being harmed. And it's, this is in South Central Los Angeles where I grew up in the heat of the civil rights movement and black power movements of that time. And I remember her being a chronic state of worry 
um, talking to herself, walking back and forth. She'd be happy to know I'm doing walking meditation <laughs> now and, instead of pacing. You know, I, but I do remember um, uh, watching her when she died. You know, I, I remember when watching her pace, and um, I said to myself, "I'm not going out like that. I'll, there's just got to be a better way. I'm not going out like that." And I think there was some deal I made with myself early on to try to figure out if there was some way to not worry myself to death. I think it was, and the hardest part about watching her was that I couldn't comfort her. I couldn't comfort her. Uh, there were no words. There was just nothing to really do about that situation. And I was surrounded by a lot of people that uh, had a sense of just chronic worry and um, fear about their children and the communities that we lived in. I, um, so early on I had that imprint and um, grew up in, with a very activist family. So there was a lot of activity in the community and there was also a lot of jazz. So I just wanted to throw that in. I don't know why. It's, <laughs> There was something about it. There's a chapter in my book called Artistry as Cultural Medicine. So I do think there's something to finding whatever that expression is uh, that's medicine for our community. My professional life was in um, the field of clinical psychology and organizational development. So I was used to working in corporate America doing culture change projects and working with leaders to change the culture so that it was more inclusive. And um, I left that work because I felt that uh, as long as, it, this is something I came up with, I, I don't know how true it was, but it was true for me at the time, that as long as there's capitalism, it's going to be hard for there to be inclusion. But uh, So it was hard to go up against doing, you know, we were running into all these issues of ethics and doing, um, uh, purchasing labor with, with China and other countries, and, and it just became so heartbreaking to be a part of it. I, I ended up leaving to pursue, again, just like I said to my great-grandmother, it's got to be a better way. I left there saying the same thing. I became... Um, uh, involved in mindfulness meditation in 1992. And uh, it was during that time that I started seeing that there could be a better way to wrestle with some of the distress that I was facing around racism and racial distress. Um, and this is what I wrote in the book about that transition. I was attracted to mindfulness meditation because my habitual ways of relating to racial distress and activism were not working. I was a righteous rager. I even wrote a book about it in 2004. But it wasn't until I was introduced to mindfulness meditation that I learned how to interrupt the mental war I was inflicting on others and myself and clarify my deeper intent which was to understand race, transform racism, and do no harm, especially towards myself. Mindfulness helps us put a critical pause between our instinctive and often overwhelming feelings of being wronged, harmed, or endangered, and our response to it. And in that pause, we gain perspective. We find our breath, our heartbeat, and the ground beneath our feet. This, in time, supports us in seeing our choices more clearly and responding more wisely. So the practice of mindfulness meditation be became a, a regular routine for me in being able to navigate the intense reactivity that was activated in the face of racism and racial distress. And then I moved to um, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I left Berkeley, California, and moved to the South. And I, uh, I blame it on my partner, but that's another talk. Um, 
And um, it was a place where I could feel the discontent of the ancestors at my feet, and yet I felt this real politeness in my face. And there was something really disorienting about <laughs> this. Uh, I had a, a, a white um, guy in, in Charlotte. He was from Germany, but he had lived in Charlotte most of his life. I was on a panel with him. And I was telling him about the transition of moving to Charlotte. And he said, yeah. And he, he didn't have a smile on his face. He said, yeah, people come here and confuse friendship with friendliness. And when I heard that, it was a real, it's like, that's exactly what I've been doing. You know? uh, but it really helped me see that there could be a deeper reason I was coming to the South, the place that my family fled. Um, because of racism, that there might be something knocking at my door to pay attention to in a different way. And then um, several years ago, I developed this training called Mindful of Race, which was really looking at the intersection of racism and racial conditioning and mindfulness practice. And that's been going on for several years, and it's helped me see the beauty that can happen for us in being able to hold what's true, even if we don't like it, uh, through this practice. So that's what I'd like to talk a little bit more with you about this evening. Um, what I found in the practice of mindfulness is that I could begin to see the skeletal shape of oppression and my relationship to it by getting myself still and recognizing how I was relating to the mind, the activity of mind that was arising. And there's a teaching that supports us in understanding this that I like to talk about, and it's the two truth doctrine that's uh, taught in many of the traditions um, in Buddhism. And it relates to ultimate reality and relative reality. And in ultimate reality, we are nobodies. We're formless. I'm being very simplistic with this teaching. It's a very deep teaching. But in ultimate reality, we're formless. We're empty, um, infinite. There's the no sense of self. And in uh, relative reality, we're conditioned. It's the realm of concepts. We're in these bodies. We have these senses. Um, and um, the conceptual or perceptual world is the way we navigate relative reality. We've got these ages and sizes and colors and shapes, these spacesuits as Tara Brock likes to talk about. We all come in different models with abilities, and some of them have instructions and others don't. But so we're floating around, <laughs> bumping into each other in relative reality. But in ultimate reality, we're none of these things. In relative reality, I'm black, I'm woman, I'm lesbian, I'm great-grandmother, I'm author, I'm, you know, a whole lot of other things people have told me I am. And then in ultimate reality, I'm none of these things. I'm none of these things. I'm beyond these conceptual uh, projections and beliefs that I carry about who I am. In relative reality, there's racial ignorance, there's injury, there's exploitation, there's suffering. In ultimate reality, there's no such thing as race. And there's no fear about it. So I've heard this said in different ways in the Christian um, communities, you hear the body as the vessel and the spirit as eternal, you know. Um, but in spiritual practice, in mindfulness, we get a glimpse of ultimate reality. In fact, I think that might be why we come to a spiritual practice, because we know there's something more than our day-to-day -day thoughts and beliefs and the fixations and the conditioning that we've been raised as a way of looking at the world. But in relative reality, in these bodies, in this body of fear, 
that walks around bumping into the rest of you. Uh, we forget that we belong to each other. We forget that there's an ultimate reality. And we get fixated on our perceptions and concepts and beliefs and projections. We're conditioned into seeing ourselves as separate. T.S. Eliot, uh, the literary critic of the 20th century poet, he says it this way. He says, the eternal is outside of time, yet it is only in time that the fruits of spiritual liberation can manifest. So we need these bodies. We need this relative reality to know ultimate reality, to have a glimpse of it. Ultimate and relative reality are two expressions of one truth. But we have this severed belonging in relative reality. We have some dynamics that we can begin to pay attention to that shows us how we relate to each other. So in severed belonging, which is kind of the we get severed in the relative reality, in our relative realm. What we see here often, especially in spiritual communities, is what's referred to often as spiritual bypass. And spiritual bypass was a term that was um, offered to us by John Wellwood, a Buddhist psychologist in the early 80s, who was in the insight tradition. And here's what he wrote about spiritual bypass. He says, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence. <laughs> Trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. And then we tend to use the absolute truth to dismiss to dismiss relative human needs. I see this as an occupational hazard on the spiritual path, trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them <coughs> is dangerous. It leads to a conceptual one-sided spirituality in which one pole is elevated at the expense of the other. Absolute truth is favored over relative truth, emptiness over form, transcendence over embodiment, and detachment over feelings. And when we prefer the ultimate and dismiss the relative, then we cause tremendous racial harm. So in my book, I'm focusing on the relative reality of race. I'm not talking about how we are all one and the same. I'm talking about the relative reality of racial harm and the potential that this practice can offer us to transcend that, but not without being touched by it, not without waking up to your relationship to it because relative realm is a relational realm. It's a kinship realm. I talk about in the book is racism as a heart disease. You know, some of us can live with a heart disease for a long time without knowing it. <coughs> I had open heart surgery at 27, and I lived with a heart disease for a long time without knowing it. And I had a righteous reason for everything I thought it meant. <laughs> you see, too many of us want racial suffering to go away before we first have been touched by it. <coughs> Spiritual bypass is to try to deal with racism without being touched by it. It's a particular flavor of suffering. So I'll be using gross labels like white folks, people of color, just to talk about 
you know, because it's just a way to talk about um, our relative dynamics. It's not meant to separate us. It's meant to acknowledge the separation that already exists. And it's not meant as a fixed thing. It's meant as a gateway. So if I'm talking about white folks, I'm talking about using that label to look closer and deeper at our conditioning. Same is true for people of color. Ajad Utejaniya, um, uh, one of our beloved Tibetan teachers, says people only become awake and alert when there is some sort of discomfort or distress. They stop paying attention once they are comfortable again. So if you're feeling uncomfortable as I'm talking about this, it's really good news. <laughs> In fact, it's probably a good idea to give 50% of your attention to the body and breath as I'm speaking for the rest of the evening, just so you can stay with me, stay as present as you can. Uh, our lovely teacher in our tradition, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the Pali translator of so many of the texts that we learn from, he talks about uh, Samvega, which is a Pali term, and he says, Samvega is an inner commotion or shock which does not allow us to rest with our habitual adjustment to the world. Instead, it drives us on out of our cozy palaces and into unfamiliar jungles <coughs> to work out with diligence authentic solutions to our existential plight. So the book I've written is not about solving the racial injustices in the world. Uh, it's, uh, it's offering a framework for understanding how we got here in this relative realm. How did we get here and how do we make some shifts through this practice to shift our relationship to racial uh, ignorance and distress and injury? So the book explores five questions. The first question is, why are matters of race still matters of concern, and what does this have to do with me? That's one question. Question two, how do I work with my thoughts, fears, and beliefs in ways that nurture the dignity of all races? Three, how do I comfort my own inner distress in a sea of racial ignorance and violence? Four, how do I advocate for racial justice and healing without causing harm and hate, internally and externally? And number five, how can my thoughts and actions reflect the world I want to live in and leave to future generations? So um, the, this is the inquiry. Uh, this is what's feeding the, the book. And um, it's not like we answer those questions thoroughly, but we get a good start in it. The book is organized in three parts, um, and it's centered around the metaphor of racism as a heart disease, and it's curable. So the first part of the book is dealing with the diagnosis. How do we diagnose the heart problem? And um, how do we understand the habits of harm that we've been conditioned in? that we kind of just habitually move with in our lives. So I'm laying out a series of um, uh, structures that support us in looking at racial conditioning and, um, and how we got here.
And in part two, I'm uh, laying down a series of mindfulness practices to support us in creating a sense of inner stability so that we can investigate our habits. So inevitably, as we're starting to wake up around race, and especially our part in it, we need a place where we can work with that stimulation, that activa activation that happens. And so we drop that into our mindfulness practice. So there's a number of exercises and instructions on how to do that and how to work with um, that in your practice. And then in part three, we explore um, how to cultivate a culture of care and um, how we become effective change agents from the inside out. Uh, working uh, mainly with looking at, at um, how we uh, uh, contribute to a culture that supports the relative reality of race, but also the ultimate um, reality of our belonging. So some strategies there. So what I'd like to do now is dive in a little bit to, with part one and two, just to give you a little taste of some of the things we can begin to look at. In part one, where we're diagnosing this heart disease of racism, we're looking at our habits of harm. And we're looking at it through three lenses. We're looking at our conditioning through the lens of being an individual, from the lens of being a member in a racial group identity, or some of us are in a number of group identities. And then we're also looking at it from the institutional lens of what constitutes the, the structures that maintain racism in our social realm. Taking a look at our relationship through these three windows. And I just wanna, one of the ways uh, I talk about it is through this rubric and um, the first is six sides and three pairs. And the first pair is that we're all good individuals and we're all part of racial group identities, which I just talked about. We're all good individuals in the sense that we've had, um, we've all come through a body, we've all had experiences in our family, we've all suffered losses. Um, We've all had amazing things happen in our lives. Uh, we've all been hurt. Uh, we've all you know, got our hearts broken and done amazing things and accomplished a number of things. We're all good individuals and we're all part of racial group identities. And what that means is that we're a part of a collective body in our race that has impact on the world collectively. And as a racial group identity, there are dynamics that play in the relative reality, the dynamics of dominance and subordination. So that's the next pair on the rubric. All racial identity groups are not created equal. Some of them are dominant, others are subordinated. White people are dominant at the racial identity group level people of color are subordinated in our relative reality. This is a dynamic we can begin to see and notice. It's hard, um, I find in the, this retreat I've been offering and the work I've done for many years, uh, for white people to see this collective dominance because many white people that I've worked with um, are beginning to recognize that they see themselves as good individuals, but not necessarily as part of racial identity groups. So there's a recognition of I might be a white person, but I'm not so sure I feel into the field of being a racial group. I don't feel that group thing, right? And people of color tend to maneuver and move through their life 
in race, with, with deep racial group identity because what's pushed the racial group identity together has been a sense of oppression. Most racial people of color, racial identity groups share oppression as a common denominator in the body of color. So one of the ways we miss each other when we come into exchanging around race is that white people come as good individuals, people of color come as racial group identities, and we miss each other. <clears throat> white people haven't habitually, although I think this is changing and it really is a beautiful thing to see, white people haven't had the habit energy or the conditioning where the neural paths have changed maybe dramatically enough of coming together to talk about whiteness, to talk about themselves as a collective body. And um, this, is, this is a piece I think that's missing in the, in the, in the healing mechanism of our uh, transformation as a collective. And so it shows up as a sense of amnesia or unrootedness in the conversation because it's like the whole history of where you've come from is not engaged in the exchange. So you're showing up as a good individual, and you are. And you're part of a racial group identity that gets left out of the equation. This is a really pervasive dynamic that's important to, to see. Um, there's characteristics of dominance, and whether it's, it's dominance as a race, as white people, whether it's dominance as, as um, men, whether it's dominance as Christian, you know, any group that's in a dominant role in our society share some things in common, and that is, is that you don't have the habit of examining yourself as a body, as a collective body. It's just the nature of being on top. You don't have to kind of look at some things. It's not a criticism, it's a fact. So, you know, uh, people in dominant roles, you know, the basic stance sometimes at a collective is, you know, convince me why I need to see this differently. You know, what, what, do you, what, what, you know. So, and then subordinated uh, groups um, are in the business of creating movements to push up against the dominant culture. We see this, you know. But it doesn't have to always be that dramatic. It could be something in our sangha where we constantly keep asking the same questions that don't get kind of prioritized as a concern because the, the leadership in most of our sanghas are, are, are white people. It's not a criticism. It's that we need to look at how that individual thing gets morphed into um, a sea of not seeing. A common comment I get from white people that kind of shows how this works is, when I look at you, I don't see color. It's a beautiful statement. I understand it. It's an ultimate statement. It's an ultimate reality statement. I, I get it. I wish I could say that. <laughs> right? Rarely would you see a person of color saying that. When I look at you, I don't think, you just, it just wouldn't happen. But you see how that works. You say, when I look at you, I don't see color. That's an individual statement. That's a dominant statement. I don't have to see color. There's no understanding of the impact of that. It's not that I'm holding on and have a need for you to see color, but if you're not seeing color, it concerns me what you are seeing. Because if you're not seeing color, then I think that there's some way that you're seeing from your lens of individual good people. And we're all just good people, but it's a little deeper than that. And the, the, the hurt that occurs there from the invisibility of not seeing color is a whole other kind of story. I have a need for you to see my color. You don't have to say, I see your color. But don't say, when I look at you, I don't see color. I mean, you know. 
And it's not so much about don't say it. It's like I want you to investigate that, the meaning of that more than anything else. That when you say that, you're really coming from your individual lens of dominance. And the dominance is invisible to you because the racial group identity of whiteness has not been vetted. It has not been examined by white people. Another dynamic that happens with this dominant and subordinated and individual and racial group identity pairs uh, is what I refer to as the stars and the constellations. That white people tend to see the stars, people of color tend to see constellations. So um, an example of that is uh, uh, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, there was a group of us in Charlotte that got together. It's been so many killings since then, but this one was so palpable because we were trying to come together as a community and talk about the pain of that. And uh, so we got into these small groups and a clip was shown of the, and we were asked to talk about what we saw and how we felt. And this white guy who was in the group said, when it was his turn, he said, I can't believe that man killed that boy that way. It should have never happened. And he was trembling and shaking and crying. And, um, and I, you know, we all got his, his pain around it. He saw the star. He saw this incident. When it was my turn, I said, I can't believe that once again, a white police officer has killed an unarmed black man in the streets. And I too was shaking and trembling. I was seeing a constellation. I was seeing a pattern of killings, not just a single incident. The person, the white male that it shared saw a single incident. And this is another way we miss each other. You know, because of the way our eyes have been conditioned to see, um, see the issue and talk about it and put, put color in it, you see. So when we see, you know, this like the, the latest flurry around the two guys go in the Starbucks early and the police is called or the... You know, the woman in at Yale is, black woman at Yale is taking a nap in the hall and white woman calls the police because it doesn't look like she belongs there. You know, the African-American people are dancing across the stage getting their diploma, you know, and this white marshal physically um, moves their body out of the way because their behavior doesn't belong on the stage. Uh, the five black women golfing, <laughs> the police is called because they're not moving fast enough on the field. These are constellations of harm. And when we don't see the constellations and we see them as solo incidents, uh, we're missing some of the, the, the color that's at play at the group identity level. We won't see that if we come from an individual lens as just a good individual. We'll see it when we step into recognizing our group identity. So our challenge is to really to connect the dots around these things. Then we can see the same constellations in Tibet and Bosnia and Australia and Canada and Syria and Palestine. We, it's the same constellation of harm. It's really not over there, it's, it's here. We can see that and see our relationship to it. Again, Utajaniya says that, he says, has this beautiful image. He said, if you took the roof off of a restaurant, you'd see at once the chef cooking, the people entering the restaurant, the host greeting people, and food being served. 
while the parts are functioning separately, we can see it all instantaneously. This is also true with ultimate and relative reality. We want to cultivate the clear scene without separating the parts. You could focus on one function, but they're all operating at once. So part of the work around looking, being mindful of race is opening the awareness to see the constellation of harm that's happening and our relationship to it. The book, it talks about six hindrances, so I'm just touching on a few of them. But the six hindrances that I talk about in the book is white privilege. And these are hindrances to racial harmony. This dynamic of white privilege is, it kind of goes hand in hand with being in a dominant racial group. And uh, most white people I know don't really relate to the word privilege. Some of them do. I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing a trend where white people are acknowledging that they have white privilege, but they're holding it as, a, as oh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those privileged ones. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, it, it actually uh, becomes another kind of label. Um, I'm, I'm kind of working on my understanding with that. But for the most part, most of the white people that I'm talking to or not relating to the word privilege because it's not their individual experience. And see, the only way to understand privilege is to understand group identity. If you understand group identity, then you can understand privilege. Because it's not about the individual being privileged. It's the, it's the pervasiveness of the collective at play and how it impacts other races. That is privilege. So one of the simple ways I describe privilege is the choice to be white or not, to be aware or not, or to engage or not without consequence. So this thing of privilege gets kind of minimized because uh, there's no feeling into the collective. And there's three ways that privilege tends to ma manage itself or, or keep itself alive. And there are three collusion dynamics. It's blindness, sameness, and silence. That's how it kind of hangs out. Blindness is we don't see it, don't quite see it that way. You know, alternative facts, false news, I'm playing with you now. <laughs> Um, a lot of times the blindness is played out that white people don't see um, color unless a person of color points it out. That's another way that blindness is at play. We were all fine until, you know, sameness. We don't quite see that we're all white because that's part of dominant culture, you don't recognize that subtlety. And then there's silence, there's avoidance of talking about race or showing up around it that can play itself out. I like to tell this funny thing I saw come through Facebook, I don't know if it's totally true, it was in 2005, it said incoming Congress. 80% white male, 92% Christian, 100% unaware that this is a problem. <laughs> That's kind of how blindness, sameness, silence works. It's kind of, mm, wow, you know. Yeah, we, can, we can wake up to these dynamics, this dance, this skeletal shape of oppression. We can notice the flesh we put on its bones when we wake up to seeing our relationship to it. You know, so at the individual level, we can have biases. At the racial group identity level, we can have prejudice. But it's the institutions where racism lives. Racism lives in policies, practices, norms, 
you know, operating procedures, uh, notions about who belongs, who doesn't, who gets shot, who doesn't, what is, who gets imprisoned, who doesn't, who gets in detained, who doesn't. Those are the systems of racism. And the systems of racism, the pockets of places where these decisions are being made, um, is a roll-up of racial group identity. So the institutions that are run by white people, white people in the institutions bring their consciousness with them around race. If they have an awareness of their racial group identity of whiteness, then the consciousness around whiteness is rolled into the leadership into the, in the institution. Because we take ourselves everywhere we go. So it's not a matter of whether an institution is racist or not. It's what do you do when you start to wake up with this? Because most institutions weren't made with people of color in mind. They have to be shift, shifted, to open to that. That's not a criticism. That's just a fact. It's the consciousness that, that's carried through. So if you're not aware of race, yourself as a race, not aware of whiteness, then that gets lived in the culture if you're in a leadership or power position. And again, you know, social movements are attempting and seeking some sense of social equanimity in the relative realm of our existence. We're, we're trying these movements, and there's so many of them right now, are trying to seek a sense of, well, wait a minute. It's, it's, it's a lot about belonging and who decides and penetrating power structures. So individual, we can have biases, group identity, we can be prejudiced. Racism lives in the institutions, the, 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 the places of power and authority and leadership. So that's a real important place to check and see um, your conditioning. And then the last, um, two sides of this rubric have to do with uh, two structures that support us in deepening our inquiry into what we're starting to wake up to around race. So we have um, racial affinity groups and mindfulness meditation. Both of them are mindfulness structures. So I'll talk about the racial affinity groups first because they're so, uh, important and there's a lot in the book that talks about how to set this up and I know some of you are already in a racial affinity group a group with with others of your same race to investigate in this sense um, your racial conditioning it's a place where we get to kind of examine our impulses and habits and uh, our beliefs that's been maybe passed down to us. Um, and, uh, and it's also a place where there can be a building of community. For white people, for example, it's important to be in a racial affinity group because you begin to uh, feel into your racial group identity, your members. You member yourself in a racial affinity group. You member yourself around whiteness. And you begin to see your diversity, the diversity in whiteness. And see what you share in common and what you don't. And, and to unpack some of the beliefs, but mostly to really feel into why it's so uncomfortable to be with each other as white people. So many racial affinity groups I support are saying, I get so bored when I'm around other white people. I, I want to be around some people of color and feel some juice like something's happening. Or I hear that a lot. <laughs> and I said, well, why, again, mindfulness is about being with what's there. <laughs> so it's an opportunity to deal with the numbness or the boredom 
or the I don't knowness, or this feels weird, and I, you know, I don't even know if I like you-ness. That can happen. <laughs> you know, it can start to look at what is this? What's it like to be membered? Why, what are people talking about this race stuff, this whiteness stuff? Some of the questions we can ask is, when did you first discover you were a race? That's a hard question for some people. And what were the childhood events that solidified you as a racial being? Many people of color can answer that in a heartbeat. And I think white people can too, if they were to stay with the question. Another question could be, and there's a list of questions in the book, but what are the roots of your racial lineage? And given your lineage, what has your race gained or lost? We're kind of living what's unfinished and ungrieved and unhealed from our, from our racial folks, even if we never knew them, even if we don't like them. We've still been shaped by them. And what has your racial group membership protected you from knowing, experiencing, or trusting about other racial groups? That, that would be a beautiful conversation for all of us to have in our racial affinity groups. What beliefs do you have about other racial groups that create inner distress? And how do these beliefs impact your relationship to race and racism? What are you feeding? through your bullets? What are you giving birth to in your rage about the other? And we discover through the mindfulness um, practice and in these racial affinity groups that some of the questions we're asking are not meant to have answers. They're meant to apprentice us. They're meant to have us itch and scratch and just sit with that for a while. So those of us who have a, a need for there to be closure and let's move on and let's get on and do it, it's kind of like um, probably not the best thing to do. Can you sit with your distress? Can you drop your, your distress right into the heart of your practice? The Buddha specialized in suffering. This is something we can really rely on the practice for. And then the last side of the rubric is on our mindfulness practice. Our mindfulness practice can be so helpful. You know, a lot of you have heard the acronym RAIN. I'm playing with RAIN a bit in the book to recognize what's here in our sitting practice, and uh, both in our sitting practice and in our relationships. Allow it to be here. Investigate. Nurture. And in the investigate, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela said that when we can sit in the face of insanity and dislike and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. He was free way before he got out of prison. And... Um, Shenzhen Young, a Vipassana teacher, I came across this recently. He said, the spiritual path consists of two aspects, seeing beyond the limited self and refining the limited self. As you move along this path, you have to consistently attend to both. Again, this relative and ultimate dance that we're in. A big part of mindfulness that I'm um, talking about in the book has to do with our misperceptions. This is a big thing around race, you know, how we perceive. And there's a, there's a sutta in the teaching, the Vipalasa Sutta, that speaks to the, uh, our misperception. And it offers this mechanism of looking at how we perceive that with perception come thoughts and emotions instantaneously and then a view falls out of that, especially when it's reinforced. I'm oversimplifying, but that's kind of what it's offering. 
So we perceive, and then we have feelings about it, thoughts about it, and then a point of view about it that we stick to until we re-examine the point of view, and then the cycle just creates it, repeats itself. And we see this a lot in, in race, you know, this belief. So my mother tells, told me a story many, many years ago of the two black guys driving down a one-road hilly mountain in their car, and the two white police officers were driving up the hill, and they had to share the road, and as they passed each other, the black guys shout out of the car, pigs, pigs. And the police officers thought it was, you know, the racial slur, that word, you know. Uh, they couldn't really turn their car around on the one lane road, right? So a few more feet up the road, they have to slam on their brakes because a herd of pigs are crossing the path. <laughs> you know. So... They, they thought they knew the brothers were just trying to help them out. <laughs> I, I was in Charlottesville, and I had just done a mindful of race training there. And uh, we, yeah, I was, This white woman was taking me to the airport, and we stopped at this intersection. And I looked up, and the, road, the, the name of the street said Barack Avenue. And I was sitting there, I got so excited, my body got all warm. All of a sudden I was, I saw myself in a regal African gear. I was speaking Swahili in my mind. And I was saying, oh, what a progressive city. I think I'm gonna move here. And you know, I'm thinking this in my mind and I finally say something to the woman that's driving. I said, wow, you have a, you have a street here called Barack Avenue. What the, you know? And she clears her throat. <clears throat> In these parts, we call it Barracks Avenue. <laughs> and I was just, I was just so disappointed. I, and you know, you think about, well, what if I hadn't said anything? I would have went home and convinced my partner to move to Charlottesville. <laughs> How often do we do this? A lot, you know. You know, and I was on a plane coming back and I have these wristbands that say mindful of race, not there yet, you know. So this, this stewardess that shows you to your seat, she, she says, oh, what does your band say? And then she looks, she says, oh, mindful of race. Oh, yes, um, I ran a 10K for cancer once. Yeah, how are you doing? How is your... <laughs> You know, we kind of stream live our own stories, and we really need to really question them. I mean, these are like simple, but at, you know, when this stuff is going fast feed, it, fast force, it, it can make the difference in whether somebody pulls a trigger or not. You know, our conditioning, we're conditioned around who, who we should be afraid of and who's a criminal. Or who do we trust? It's not even something we're conscious of. It's automatic. We need to slow it down. We need to question. Uh, the mindfulness supports us in slowing it down and seeing, seeing beyond our thoughts and perceptions, having a bit of space around our worries. This one story, Tara. I got from Tara, she says, a couple of women moved in across the hall from me. One is a middle-aged gym teacher and the other is a social worker in her mid-twenties. These two women go everywhere together and I've never seen a man go in and out of the apartment. Do you think they're Lebanese? <laughs> See, we think we know stuff. We don't, we don't know anything. We know nothing. So with RAIN as a part of our practice, or the four foundations of mindfulness, depending on how you want to work it, we can begin to ask the question. We can recognize by asking, what's happening right now? You can bring it to the cushion. What's happening right now? Uh, where, where and how am I hurting? Because there's usually some contraction when we run into this distress. And for A, we can allow it. Can I be with what's happening right now, just the way it is, without interference, without adding layers of meaning and interpretation to it, at least for now? 
and the I. How am I relating to it? What's getting triggered in me? What am I afraid of? How old is this response? And the N is for nurture. How do I care for this distress that I'm experiencing? What tenderness is needed? So we can investigate our internal, on our, on our cushion, and we can investigate the same way in our relationships with other people. And sometimes it doesn't have to be out loud. We can just go through this process when we're in the thick of a difficult situation and get yourself steady and dignified because our response plants seeds that's going to bloom. And more and more we want to be concerned about what we're planting through our actions, through our hearts, through our minds. So maybe I'll stop here. Um, and um, open the space up a little bit for any questions or comments or reflections you might have. Let me just summarize this quick. Maybe you can help me with this. What are the first two? Individual and, and group identity were both. Next two, dominant and subordinated racial group identities. Okay, and the third, racial affinity group and mindfulness meditation. All right, that's your rule.